Hello and welcome everyone to VoIP for Independent Telecoms, the podcast for local service providers who want to offer great services on a resilient network. I'm your host, Andrew Ward from Award Consulting, and I'm joined today by Mark Matthews from Kentic. Welcome, Mark. Thanks for having me, Andrew. I'm delighted that you could join us. I'm glad you could be here, um, partly because I actually want to spend most of this episode talking about that resilient network thing that I just mentioned. I know you've got some some thoughts to share to help educate our listeners and to share some ideas for how they can become more resilient. But I'm also glad that you could be on because many years ago, we used to work together. Yeah, that's correct. You and I worked together at Metaswitch before it was even called uh, Metaswitch. Just for those who don't know the history, I don't think this is something you've covered in your previous episodes. But uh, for those who don't know the history, the company was actually founded as a company called Data Connection, or DCL, as we affectionately uh, called it, headquartered in, in Enfield, uh, England, just outside of London, on the north side of London. And Data Connection uh, was founded by a bunch of, of smart Oxford or Cambridge grads who had built software protocol stacks that were sold and integrated into other people's uh, products. You know, Metaswitch was a combination of all these products into one complete product, um, that being a soft switch back when soft switching was brand new and data connection was a very well run company and uh, very profitable up until you know, getting acquired. But except for the, the Metaswitch division early on when you and I were there, I remember feeling a bit ashamed that we'd have these sole company meetings and we were not contributing to the profit targets uh, that were set for us. And of course, later it, it turned out not to be a problem. And, you know, they even rebranded data connection as uh, Metaswitch, I think in 2009. Yeah, it took a little while, I think, for Metaswitch to get going as a business unit. My recollection is that in the early days, the management thought was, hang on, we're selling all of these components, these protocol stacks that we've created to all these people who are building soft switches. How hard could it be for us just to combine all this technology that we already have and make our own soft switch? And I think the answer was harder than you thought. Right. Um, <laughs> but ultimately, it worked, it worked out well. And like you said, there were a lot of soft switches back in the day, like 15, 20 years ago. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've been in the telecoms industry for a long time. I've seen more technology come and, and go than I care to admit. I mean, I'm going to be dating myself here, but I, I remember selling modem banks to telephone companies and talking about 56K. It's the new standard. So, you know, I'll, I'll, our, our younger listeners here are asking, what is a modem, Mark? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was, it was how you got on the internet before everybody had a cell phone or uh, before we had direct internet connections. You actually used your phone line to dial into a internet service writer. But, uh, you know, what you talked about soft switches, one of my favorite stories from my telecom careers was I worked for a company called Send Communications and we were acquired by Lucent uh, back in, in 1999. And, you know, again, Lucent was a, a major international telecoms equipment manufacturer and they acquired a Send for some obscene amount of money that had a B in the, the price. But at that time I was in the VoIP and soft switch group selling what was called the Ascend signaling gateway. And when, when we merged with Lucent, we found that they had acquired two other companies with competing soft switches, that being Stratus and then uh, something called the Pass Star, which, you know, affectionately became known as the Death Star because it metaphorically imploded any of the carriers that had, had taken the chance and, and bought it. Uh, there were many lawsuits that uh, were born of it. But anyway, in addition to the three soft switches that Lucent had acquired, they were developing their next generation 5ESS switch, which it's called the 7RE, and here we were, ex-Ascend solution engineers and trying to compete against not one, not two, but three other, you know, solutions for the same soft switch business. And interestingly, none of those solutions are supported today. You know, I don't think there's any of those left. Yeah, there were a lot, a lot of people back in the day. I mean, and even the ones that 
are still around to some extent. You know, I still encounter Tarquas and Telecas and Coppercom's pretty much gone, but I guess still the odd Coppercom out there um, who were competitors to the MetaSwitch. And they seem to have lasted maybe less well than, than the DMS-100 and the, the switches of the generation before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, we started at MetaSwitch, uh, well, I think I was 2001, you were maybe 2004-ish, but you were a sales engineer or a solutions engineer. I think, did you say one of the, one of the first um, people in that role at MetaSwitch? Um, yeah, I was fortunate enough to be uh, very near the, the beginning of MetaSwitch. I mean, certainly when the, the market momentum for soft switching and then, you know, also MetaSwitch uh, was taking off. And I was the first SE hired. I worked on many iLike and C-like customer uh, deals over my eight years. I was very proud of the work that we were doing across the board. And I finally remember the MetaSwitch forum events, making so many industry friends that I had over the years there. I mean, I, it's definitely served me well. And I think after MetaSwitch, you know, I managed a team of SEs at a company called Exceedian, which for those who don't know, they're a leader in the carrier ethernet space. You know, nothing against MetaSwitch. Me leading it just was an opportunity for me to get in because carrier ethernet was a growing area for many of the telephone companies. And as, as VoIP revenues dried up, they weren't able to make money. You know, voice became a, a cost center. And so uh, carrier Ethernet was something that everybody was growing into, and that was the career progression I made after MetaSwitch. Whereas I failed totally to progress my career at all and just continue to stay in the old traditional uh, voice-based, POTS-based uh, MetaSwitch world, even to today. Moving on from our like historical conversation here, today, you know, you're working at a company called Kentic, and this is relevant to us and to our audience here because of this whole idea of resilient networks, network resiliency. And as an entry point to this, actually, I read a few days ago that I think there were three um, significant VoIP providers in the UK who all um, experienced a significant outage due to a DDoS attack originating from R-Evil, who's, uh, I think, a a Russian-based hacking group. And DDoS is kind of a big deal, right? You can distribute a denial-of-service attack, and this is one way in which you can discover whether your network is actually resilient or not. So I'd like to start with that entry point. And maybe you can do a better job than I did of maybe just defining what a DDoS attack is and then begin to kind of explore how a carrier could prevent something like that from happening. Yeah, sure. So one of the things that we've seen as the world has moved to VoIP is is a vulnerability to call it the evils of the internet. I think the closest thing, just going historically, the, the closest thing that I can remember to a DDoS attack back in the old TDM voice days was when American Idol first launched in the United States and, you know, you voted via 1-800 number and it actually crashed the AT&T class four 1-800 system in the first year. And because you had an unprecedented amount of callers phoning in to vote for either Kelly Clarkson or I think it was Justin Gritty was the runner up. But, you know, now DDoS, it's common, just even one gamer who wants to get back and another gamer can launch a DDoS attack and just try and get a one up on the, you know, playing an online game. But I'll answer your question about what DDoS is. You know, DDoS stands for distributed denial of service. And, you know, one of the things you'll see with DDoS is that it can mean multiple hosts on the internet are sending enough bad traffic to a destination server that the good traffic is not getting through. So hence the denial of service. You know, it's definitely not a new thing on the internet. You know, it, it has gotten more and more press here of, of recent because as, as the pandemic has, has pointed out, networks really are crucial. And this idea of resiliency is, is very poor, uh, very, very important. So they've also really morphed over time. You know, just to go a bit more technical, one of the more common attacks that you'll see is now to, to send 
what is called a SYN packet, S-Y-N packet, which is the start of a TCP communication to the destination, you know, say a web server, for example. And the web server uh, is supposed to respond back with a SYN ACK, uh, which is the, the second part, and reserve the resources for the upcoming session. You know, presumably this is how they're going to start communicating. And when the originator gets that SYN ACK back from the web server, they respond with another SYN, thereby completing the handshake that goes on. DDoS hackers won't send that final SYN and thereby tie up those resources. So they can basically exhaust the compute capabilities of the memory resources and web server, uh, rather than just eating up the old, the bandwidth, which is what traditionally would have happened is that, you know, you just would have sent huge amounts of traffic to a server. But unfortunately, these vulnerabilities are like at the heart of TCP IP and, and would never, you'd have to really rewrite the protocol to mitigate it. So the hackers over time have become more sophisticated, which I guess is not surprising. And they've gone from simply let's bombard the server with a ton of traffic to let's do that in a particular way, which is the most costly to the server by creating this open loop where they're supposed they're waiting for the acknowledgement, they've got the resources ready, but then they never come. And so they've kind of made the resource hit on that server much worse through the particular method of attack, it sounds like. Exactly. Yeah. That's a lot cheaper. DDoS attack than, for example, sending hundreds of gigabits or sometimes even terabits of traffic. You know, remember, they, they have to get that bandwidth from someplace. So if they're going to try and do that. Yep. Okay, so I think it's clear to me at least what a DDoS attack is. As a brief aside, actually, DDoS versus just DOS, a denial of service attack back in the day could originate from a single source. And mm -hmm. so what's really difficult about a DDoS attack is through the hackers having viruses on people's computers or whatever, they have the ability to send the attack from a whole bunch of different sources, which means you can't just block it. Right. Whereas before you could say, this is a bad IP address, it's causing us problems, let's just block it at the firewall. You can't do that on a DDoS attack. So given that you can't just block a particular IP, what can people do to prevent against DDoS attacks? Yeah, so that's a, a great question and goes to your topic about resiliency. I would say some of the keys are to have redundancies, first off, also good partners, meaning upstream providers, they can help shield you from attacks. And then, of course, tools that help identify when you're being attacked. Well, one of the, the big challenges are false positives. And how do you know when you're actually being DDoSed with bandwidth attacks versus just, you know, some patch that Microsoft has sent to all the Xboxes out there or the latest episode of Ted Lasso on Apple TV drops and everybody on Friday night is downloading 4K streams of Ted Lasso that are so uh, common. You know, truthfully, content delivery network CDNs help with stuff like that, but it could be a, a challenge to distinguish between legitimate traffic and malicious stuff. And, um, you know, the, let me talk about up, good upstream providers. One solution for EDOS is to tell your upstream provider to block that DDoS traffic. That way it's not coming to you and tying up traffic to your network that you're, by the way, paying for. The term for this is real-time black hole or RTBH is the slang for it. And so in that model, then you're able to identify, okay, we're getting DDoSed and then say to whoever your upstream provider is, actually, we don't want that traffic at all. Don't mm -hmm. send it to us. You kill it. And then it won't enter our network. It won't take up our bandwidth. It won't hit our servers. Yep, exactly. Okay, that makes sense. And I've heard, yeah, I think from an IP layer point of view, I don't remember the full terminology, but part of BGP is this ability to kind of dynamically send those requests into the network and say, actually, don't route us this traffic. Please protect us from this. DDoS is just one example of a particular bad thing that could happen to, to somebody's network. I want to actually expand a little bit here and talk more generally about basically the what a service provider can do to know what's going on in their network. 
you know, I would talk about network monitoring and maybe network observability. The idea that you need to be paying attention. You don't want to discover that you're under a DDoS attack or have something else going wrong because your customers are out of service. You want to be able to see things that are happening as they begin to happen so that you can do something about it either in a manual or an automated way. So yeah, how would you go about what software options are there for observing a network and what are the benefits that you can get from having network observability in place? That's a great question. And I'm of course, I'm going to give it a, a little bit of a biased answer because I do work for Kentic now. And I should mention that the Kentic is actually a Yiddish word that means to see. So Kentic builds itself as the leader in network of observability. And I think, as I said, with the, the pandemic, one of the things that everybody knows is how important the network is. Now, all the your telephone company uh, customers know that because that's their bread and butter. But I would say uh, the story I'd like to tell is that two years ago, my mom would not have known what a Zoom call was. And now she's on multiple Zoom calls each week for various aspects of her life. Kentic is one of those companies that I would say benefited from the pandemic. But I would tell you that using a tool like Kentic, which just to tell you a little bit what it is, it is a SaaS platform that service providers, such as your listeners, can send their telemetry data. And when I say telemetry data, that's data from existing routers, switches, firewalls that support NetFlow, SFlow, IP fix. Those are the, the popular variants of, of flow protocols. We ingest this flow. We enrich it with SNMP queries. There's also the BGP feed that you mentioned from these same devices. And this information is sent to a small virtual machine that is hosted on your telco network, where it's then encrypted and sent to our system in Equinix. So different than the old days, where, you know, there was a lot of heavy lift from hardware and things. Now it's entirely done in a cloud. And I'll tell you that Kentic runs our own private cloud, you know, similar to, to Salesforce or even Metaswitch instances that operate in the cloud. We have our own uh, cloud operated in two data centers at Equinix in Ashford, Virginia. Uh, but we take that information from these devices and we enrich it by, for example, looking at geolocation databases. So we know where the IP traffic is coming from. We look at known content delivery networks, known CDNs and security feeds from um, various security organizations that we essentially pay for. And we identify botnets and other rogue entities on the internet. Now, from this, the tocos are, are able to give up or get a great view of their network traffic and start to do things like alerting on unusual traffic patterns. You can also optimize cost by looking at how your upstream providers are being used and uh, content delivery networks that how are Netflix and Akamai affecting you? Would it make sense for them to have caches in different parts of your network or increase those capacity caches? So that's one area. I would say that the second component that you get from a network observability platform such as Kentic is, is something like synthetic testing, where you're actually using a software agent, that same agent that you're collecting the NetFlow stuff with. You can use that software agent and you can test latency and packet loss and jitter to well-known public site and agents. So your customer's calling and complaining about busy streaming traffic buffering. Well, you can have empirical data showing how well your connection to DSS, these streaming services, is. And maybe there's a bad route that's creating problems because you're going to see trace route data that is stored historically, and you can know what has happened in the past. And when you start to see problems, you know, alert your systems and begin to mitigate that. And then the third component that I would say for the network observability is the ability to inject cloud data. I mean, I've talked about the fact that many meta switches are moving to cloud type scenarios. Kenta can take that VPC flow log from any one of the major cloud providers, AWS, Azure, GCP, and will show you a similar view 
as before when it's not your infrastructure. You don't own any of the infrastructure of the routers. So you're not able to take, for example, NetFlow data off AWS's routers. I think this is where as more and more applications move to the clouds, the cloud visibility is going to be key. So um, through getting you know that kind of extra insight into security flow and so on that you mentioned at the beginning, so from a, from a security point of view, this is helping you to answer the question, oh, is our traffic pattern due to some bad behavior or is this due to Ted Lasso you know, just coming available? So it's giving you that extra insight into whether or not you have a problem. But then also you've got, like you said, the alerting, the ability to identify rules or filters to say, this particular pattern looks suspicious, we should alert people. So you get that automatic notification of things that seem that seem bad, just focused on the, the security, the responsive side of things. Is that, is that about right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And again, you know, to the point about resiliency, I think that security goes hand in hand with resiliency. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. No, I liked what you're saying about the testing, actually, because part of the way we think about resilience is very much this idea that you can't expect however much redundancy you build in, you can't expect that even with high quality products, you're going to have a perfect network and nothing's ever going to go wrong. But you can design a network that is resilient to any particular thing that you can design it. So if something does go wrong, the whole edifice won't collapse. But doing that in theory, theorizing that you've done that, saying, I have built this wonderful architecture, which I think will be resilient to anyone failure, is different from seeing it in practice. So we talk from a redundancy point of view about making sure that you have validated and tested things. And then from a network performance point of view, um, I like what you're saying about having the ability in there to test the routes to have, you know, whether that's in response to customer troubles and presumably also, you know, proactively to say, we are proactively monitoring to make sure that our connection to Disney is good or to see the consequences to these critical connections if this particular thing fails or in this, in this particular outage event. Right. On resiliency, just bringing it back to the, the Metaswitch days, I think one of the things that made Metaswitch the success that it was, was the ability to split the CFS and the media gateway. And forgive me if that's not the, the, what they're called now. I know they no, that's still good. That's still good. <laughs> I've been gone for almost a decade, but we were able to split the CFSs. First off, have two of them in an active standby, and they were sending essentially heartbeats back and forth that when they missed X number of heartbeats and things started to go south, you know, the other one would take over active and the same thing with media gateways that, you know, the, when the media gateway hadn't had the communication with the CFS it would go into standalone mode. And one of the things that I was proud about that one of the customers that I sold Metaswitch to was Cameron telephone company down in Louisiana, right there on the Gulf course or Gulf coast. And when uh, a hurricane hit their serving area, the media gateway 3510s that they had put in place were able to revert to standalone and, and complete local calls, at least including emergency calls. I mean, absolutely critical that you be able to call the emergency responders and have them come out. So that's a real live example of, you know, Metaswitch's superior technology. Yep. Yeah. Redundancy is critical. Um, if you're wanting to provide a high quality carry grade network, and that is true in voice, but also increasingly your data network is these days, just as important. You know, it's not It's not like you can just ignore data. The whole network is, is critical. So I'll give you a little opportunity for a direct sales pitch here. If someone is listening to this and they're responsible for voice or you know, network operations in at a mall ILEC, for example, um, and they're, they're listening to you and saying, okay, network observability, we should do more in that regard. I think probably a lot of people know conceptually yeah, we should be monitoring our network. We should be observing it. We should be making sure things are going well, but we just haven't got around to really figuring out what that looks like. What's a good 
kind of starting point? For somebody who hasn't done anything in this regard so far, what's a key first valuable application or a way to kind of begin doing this in a way that immediately would see some value for them? Yeah, I mean, I think the testing of the latency, even if it's not just within your network, everybody has control of their own network. So they feel very proud about the way that their network runs. But once it leaves your facility, these worlds where you're essentially having different applications run in different places, you know, or the, the streaming example right there, I think that that is a very valuable use case for people to, to consider. But it, we covered the security ADOS uh, aspect. I will tell you that I think that it's never been easier to deploy applications than it is now with these SaaS platforms. I, I mentioned there's no hardware to install. There's no, the software lift is very light that people very commonly have compute power that they can throw a simple agent and then configuration on the router to send the data from the routers and switches and, and firewalls to that agent. And then that data starts showing up in, in the Kentic portal incidentally that we're really just looking at the flow data. So the IP address information, the port, the UDP or TCP port, there's none of the payload stuff. So it's not looking at the, the VoIP as it is, the RTP at this point, but you know, it is looking at the, the communication that's going back and forth. And you know, basically within an hour, you can begin to start to see things on your network for, I think, not only very little effort up front, but also you know, it's a basically paid as you grow uh, type model. And it sounds like there's potentially quite a lot of value you can discover there. As you realize, hey, our connection to Disney isn't good enough, you can realize, okay, what can we do about that? Can we, do we need another upstream link? You know, do we need to redesign how our CDNs are, are handled? Um, that kind of thing. So you have the opportunity to refine your network to give better service to your customers in ways that they will notice. Right. And we have many smaller service provider customers. I'll, I'll mention too, I'm in the Dallas area, but uh, Santa Rosa Telephone Company in, in Vernon, Texas, not too far from me. It's just about an hour northwest. They're a customer. They're using it. Don't think they'd mind for me saying they're looking at the overtop services, the, the streaming services, and, and doing analysis of that and figuring out if there's ways for them to, to have cost savings uh, there and, and serve their customers better. And then uh, Hori Telephone Company uh, down in uh, South Carolina, uh, they have a variety of use cases. But, you know, again, it's, it's a platform that is used very large service providers and incidentally, you know, some of the, the streaming companies that we've talked about here, they're, they're customers because they're interested in making sure that they are running the best networks that they can. So I think there's broad applicability. That's great. Mark, I want to thank you for joining us today. If there are folks listening who do want to learn more, you know, want to learn more about Kentic um, or reach out to you, should they just go to the Kentic website or what's the best way for them to connect and learn more? Yeah, I will give out my email address here, Mark, M-A-R-C at Kentic, and Kentic is K-E-N-T-I-K.com. You can definitely check out the website, but I'll be happy to talk to anybody. I'm sure there are old friends that I haven't talked to in a while that are probably listening to this podcast. I will tell you, Andrew, it's, I've really enjoyed following Ward Consulting success and, uh, you know, and also listening to this podcast. So uh, super happy to be on here. Thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. Um, yeah, every new person who joins for an episode um, hopefully makes it a little bit better. And uh, it's certainly fun for me to get to have these conversations and just kind of cover a, a broad selection of topics, all of which are centered around our ILEC customers, small CLEC customers, but looking at things from a variety of different angles. And so, uh, yeah, I appreciate that you're enjoying it and that you took the trouble to, to join us today. Great, great to reconnect with you, Andrew. I, I miss working with you and some of our other Switch brother, but you know. 
Absolutely. Yeah, I, I tried to leave, but through creating the business that I did, I ended up still getting to work with everybody even after I left. So um, yeah, those relationships are very important. All right. Well, yeah, Mark, again, I appreciate your time. If you're listening to this and you enjoyed our conversation, then do be sure to check out Kentic or reach out to Mark. And also please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Spotify. And yeah, be sure to join us again next time for the next episode of VoIP for Independent Telecoms. Thank you very much.